and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today I show you Richard Owen, Vice President of Sales for Retail Wealth Management in North America for Ortec. Ortec is a company that utilizes sophisticated econometric models to project out returns for countless asset classes and helps with the ongoing monitoring of plans and projections. And with that, here's my interview with that, Richard. Hello, Richard. Hey. Thanks for taking the time today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. So Richard Owen, Vice President of Retail Wealth Management for Ortec. Tell us about Ortec. So Ortec is a company we're based in the Netherlands, in Rotterdam. Uh, we've been in business since about 1981, about 250 employees globally. Offices around the world, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, London, Zurich, Melbourne, Hong Kong, and Toronto. And what we do is essentially econometric models. We were started by, by a few academics and professors and PhD students back in the early 80s who started out building very large, complex uh, economic models. So essentially forecasting asset classes, looking out 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and actually modeling the impact of business cycles, climate change, central bank policy, interest rates, currency. So large economic models, they're approached by a couple of big Dutch pension plans in 1982 and said, basically, can you do that for us? So as a pension plan, I've got a billion dollars across 23 different asset classes. I've got liabilities in 10 years' time of $3 million or $3 billion. Uh, what's the probability of me hitting that number? And we can calculate that as a probability based on those models and projecting it out. So that's kind of where we started. Fast forward, we've got about 700 global asset classes that we model, historical data, current data, and then looking forward. And then uh, about 15 years ago, one of our banking clients in the Netherlands, uh, ING, based on some regulatory changes, uh, came to us and said, can you build out that same projection capability for retail wealth? So now as an individual client, I've got $100,000. I want a million dollars at retirement in 20 years time. And I've got nine different asset classes in my portfolio. You take the life portfolio and you're contributing $1,500 a month. And we can project out and say you have a 82% probability of hitting that million dollar goal at retirement. So that's basically what we do. We do economic projections of investment portfolios. Very dynamic. Everything's updated every month. And that, that's our business. And we have most of our business historically has been institutional, but we've got into that retail market predominantly in Europe and now in North America over about the last 15 years. So there is, I always say at this point, there's a lot to unpack there if you, if you go on in that description. And I got to tell you, there's, there's a lot more than normal to unpack in there because truly understanding what it is you guys do is, uh, is a little bit paradigm shifting in terms of your mentality. So we'll come back to that. But tell me, well, actually, I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to skip the question because you did tell me where the company came from. Tell me about your background and how you came to be involved with Ortec. So I've been in, uh, I've been in this business a while, uh, mostly on banking and wealth management, on the banking and wealth management side mostly in sales roles. And then probably about 10 years ago with TD, working more on the technology side, looking at big technology implementation projects on full service brokerage. And then 2012, went to a portfolio management company called Presis, ran mm -hmm. basically sales and marketing for them in Canada, and then joined Ortec almost two years ago now. So it was a, it was, I had no idea who Ortec was. It was a bit of a bit of a switch for me just to, to really kind of learn that side of the business on the economic economic model side. But my career has basically been in wealth management and in the last 10 years or so, specifically around technology and technology implementation. Excellent. So let's go back to what it is you guys do, because I think the basically, I think the way I described it is, oh, so you're going to kind of do for my financial projections what 
what the likes of Renaissance Capital does to make a butt ton of money, but do this for forward-looking projections for, you know, you're not a hedge fund, but this sort of like large-scale data analytics model has been used very heavily in that realm. And you're applying this to new, new verticals, essentially. So traditionally, when we stress test financial plans, people look at scenario analysis, and the most common one known is, is basically Monte Carlo analysis. Right. So Monte Carlo analysis being, let's just look at a bunch of variables and see a bunch of simplified assumptions, project out a bunch of different routes and see how you do compared to that, utilizing a, a simple mathematical framework. You guys go way beyond that. How many variables did you say you're looking at on a daily basis? So get the comparison with Monte Carlo quite a bit. So what we try and do is probably the better, a better analogy is something like trying to forecast the weather. We look at historical data, but historical data has biases in it. It has its historical data. It doesn't necessarily give you a good view of what the future looks like. So we'll take historical data going back 20, 30 years at the asset class level. We do a lot of statistical analysis around the interactions between asset classes historically, and then input that into our model, which we've been running obviously since 1982. We look at current market conditions. So bit of a kind of capital markets outlook. So we'll take current conditions, kind of where we are in the business cycle, what are kind of interest rates, what central bank policy looking like, GDP, coronavirus, geopolitical events. And we'll put that into our model to influence the estimates looking forward. And then we have longer term forward looking scenarios that we'll build in. Key things would be things like interest rate developments. We'll look at climate change, the impact of climate change, and basically create a worldview of where we think various asset classes are going. So it's a combination of historical, current, and future-looking factors. And it's different to a Monte Carlo in that a Monte Carlo, I'm going to take a historical rate of return for, let's say, for Canadian equities of 8% and apply, technically just apply a normal distribution to that based on a standard deviation. And it's a bell curve. There's much chance of a large positive return as a large negative return. And, and what we found is historical returns are not normally distributed. So we'll factor that in. So it's a fairly sophisticated, a very sophisticated forward-looking projection of various scenarios um, that are updated on a monthly basis. So it's very, very dynamic. So it's, yes, like a Monte Carlo, but not like a Monte Carlo. Well, I mean, yeah, in Monte Carlo, you use static assumptions, right? And like, let's just right. go back to the premise here. So um, the simple application for this in, in my world and those listening is, you know, as we said before, like, financial planning. I am going to put together a financial plan and I have to make assumptions on investment return, volatility, typically by asset class, which then aggregates to a portfolio, right? So simple enough. And where am I going to get those numbers? I'm either going to make them up myself. I'm going to use a 5% flat assumption. And by the way, I'm, I'm using the, the ridiculous sources first as an example of what not to do, or I'm going to basically rely on, you know, I've seen some people come up with their own frameworks for, for, for assumptions that are often econometric in, in nature. Those are the rare cases, but I'd say the more common one or the, the most become more common is to utilize someone else's assumptions. So in Canada, the financial planning FP Canada, which basically um, is the grantor of the CFP, puts out projection guidelines that recommend that they recommend everybody use, right? And this is arrived at by looking at various pension companies' assumptions for where they're gonna where the money's gonna go or how returns are gonna go. So they do that. But this also, if you don't want to use those, there are the likes of Morning, uh, Morningstar. Um, actually, I think Morningstar does maybe yeah, put do. these out, but yep. yeah, projection guidelines from Morningstar, Vanguard, BlackRock. You know, there's a lot of a lot of big institutions whose you know big brain people will say, hey, based on all the data that we crunch and everything else, we think this is it. The difference, I mean, the, the core difference is is twofold with you guys. 
you're doing it at a scale that human beings can't do solely because you're crunching through just mountains of data to get there, correct? Right. Right, so that's the first thing. Yeah. The second thing is you've turned a static process from when I get these reports in you know the spring or late summer or, or late, late, late winter to a live process in that you're testing this every day. Pretty close, yeah. It's, and you know, we run into this a lot with a lot of different institutions will have those capital markets models. Our expectation is 5%, six, whatever that number is. There's a couple of issues with it. One is that it's static. Things change as we've seen this year as a highlight. It's very, very dynamic. And those capital market models are not particularly dynamic. The other part of it is that it's very, very hard to operationalize those capital market models. So if I'm a, if I'm a large mm. bank, I've got an expectation of 5%. How do I actually operationalize that down to the individual client account levels? What happens if the client's portfolio's asset allocation changes? Mm-hmm. The assumptions you built into the plan need to then change because the portfolio has changed. The outlook is different. So the ability to operationalize econometric models, the ability to actually drive it down to the individual client portfolio level is very different. And the models are very, very dynamic. So with our big institutional clients, that's what they use us for, is for these very sophisticated forward-looking models. So we have clients like the European Central Bank, the UN Pension Plan, Unilever, Shell, OMAs, all use this for forward-looking projections. So the big institutional models, bring it down to the retail wealth level, means that if, if Jason's building a plan for a client, you can actually use the same capabilities to say, Mr. Smith's balanced growth portfolio this is what your forward-looking projection is going to look like at the individual client level. And then when you match that to an objective like a financial plan, then you can essentially do institutional-level projections at an individual level, which allows you then to say, is this goal feasible? And then because it's dynamic, we run the projections against the individual client portfolio daily. We recalculate that feasibility of the goal on a daily basis. So you can actually monitor progress or capability to meet that plan goal. Well, that's interesting. Let me, let me just jump in. At you. So, mm-hmm. so, I mean, to date, what we've seen is that there are some financial planning software, some implementations coming out whereby we can take, here's the plan, here's your goal, here's the, here's the path that we've directed for retirement, right? So here's what the projection is, which is typically a straight line on a curve, right? Now, some newer systems are allowing us to overlay data as to where the client currently stands and previously stood. So their actual asset journey versus the versus what the projection was. Of course, that's backward looking, right? They're updating what happened before. What you're saying is that your system, essentially, you can lay that, layer that over top and then basically probabilistically determine if they're still within a, a, an acceptable band of hitting that target goal yeah, in so a live way. I think the technology out there right now does a, does a good job backward looking. So performance reporting is, it can be pretty sophisticated. Current information on the portfolio. So in terms of current risk in the portfolio and obviously holdings, that's great. The capabilities around forward looking, what's potentially going to happen is extremely limited, essentially to an assumption in a Monte Carlo. We're providing is a realistic view of the future. And that's our core capability is saying, okay, we're we're forecasting out, we're looking long-term, we're going out 40 years. And it's dynamic because it's actually linked to a portfolio. So it's live. So that probability or that projection on the portfolio, let's say Jason has an 80% chance of hitting his long-term financial goal, the markets tank, that's now a 50% probability because the models changed, your portfolio has dropped in value, your asset allocation may have changed, and then the system can generate through APIs, it can generate recommendations, how do I get back on track? 
yeah. and we can do it at, and the other part we do it at scale. So if you've got 200 clients, each client has a couple of goals. I can see in one shot which client's goals are on track and which aren't. And that's where I need to probably spend my time getting them back on track. Yeah. And I mean, I'll go back to, I think I'm not sure if we talked about this functionality with the previous guest, um, Conquest, but I mean, their system will have the capability of, like I said earlier, pulling pulling in the information and, and seeing how you are trending versus the expected. And really, a lot of this is about driving what's the next best action for the advisor, right? Yeah. So, you know, you get below a certain threshold where like, whoops, you know, the savings rates probably have to change or something's got to change for you to get back to baseline to an acceptable range. That's one thing. I mean, that's that's a, again, like I said, a backward looking conversation, your ability to overlay current market dynamics over top of this, right? Like, you know, instead of waiting for the traditional financial plan update to see, well, you know, we're updating this every year or every two or every three years. Let's see how you did in comparison. You're really driving a better version of next best action compared to what the others are doing in that your backward looking is easy. You're forward looking. And I think from my standpoint as an advisor, being able to say, oh boy, this this trigger went off because this advice, you know, the savings rate or the market dip is just beyond what the, was necessary uh, or what else is what's going to work to, oh boy, we're in good shape now, but this direction based on current market dynamics is not going to be positive long run. And we need to do, even though, Mr. Client, you're in good shape, the financial plan looks, looks, looks good. The assumptions I used at the time were fantastic. Because of COVID-19 crashing interest rates around the world, as an example, all, those, all that data got updated. And now, well, we have to, revisit, we have to go back and revisit this because going, going forward, we cannot expect X or Y from, from, from bonds. We can only expect this going forward and making that, again, like you said, making that scalable and actionable. Quite the challenge, but nicely fantastic. I mean, when you first pitched this to me, I thought, wow, this is this is something I this is something I want. <laughs> it's it's it really came it, it came down to you know a lot of different pieces when we, when we were launching here. We've been doing this in, in Europe for about 15 years, as I said. And the, the key difference is it's what are your assumptions? And you can have something really basic. It's you know, it's five percent and it's five percent and it's a straight line for the next 20 years. The one thing we know it won't be will be 5% as a straight line for the next 20 years. So what is it going to be? Mm-hmm. And we can provide that kind of forward-looking capability. And it's interesting, a lot of firms that we, that we work with, and we have about 500 corporate clients globally, about 250 use this functionality for projections. And the interesting part of it is we're projecting this out. It's extremely dynamic, but different firms may not agree with our projection, with our model. Oh yes, well, that's right. One one knows better than the crowd. Let's continue. Right. Um, you can't yes. say that, but I can say. <laughs> right. So and we're fine with that. I mean, we have we model as I said about seven hundred global asset classes, everything from T bills to we we model out sixteen hedge fund strategies, the liquid hot assets in real estate. So think big pension plans, what they invest in. We model all of that. And the interesting part of it is, if if, if a firm like big bank says. That's great. We have a different view of Canadian large cap. We that can sounds actually, like a Canadian bank. Just go on. Yeah, Sorry. <laughs> Canadian financial services, call it that. Um, yeah. We have a different view. We replace our model for that segment with theirs. So it can become very custom and we'll run you know, the other 699 asset classes. So it's flexible, but the underlying two components, one is the, the models. And we're very transparent about how our models, what assumptions are built in and, and kind of what the outlooks are. The other part is the engine that allows us to run this against real portfolios, which is another kind of key differentiator. 
is the- So are you taking feedback from the actual, I mean, I think you're, you're benchmarking these results and, and doing that. So how iterative is this thing? Is this redesigning itself as the yeah. recommendations either happen or don't? Yeah, we have, we have a very big research team that constantly are checking, fact-checking, tweaking, testing. Are we capturing all of the volatility? Are we capturing all the, the functionality or all the features in the various asset classes? And, you know, as an example, I was at a conference last year and there was a discussion around correlation coefficient compression. And it's basically, can we model the correlation between asset classes as it compresses in a down market and expands in an up market? Can we actually model that? Can we actually predict that? So that's the kind of level we get down to extremely sophisticated capabilities around the model, uh, which is great. But at a retail level, it just gives a, a realistic view of the future that's, as I said, is dynamic. It's updated every month. And then from an advisor's perspective, I can see which clients are on track and which ones aren't. And that's fundamentally from an advisor perspective, kind of the key component is the ability to essentially monitor on a daily basis the feasibility of every financial plan or every financial goal in your book. Yeah. I mean, I, what, I, what I love about what you do is that it's kind of when you basically pitched to me the first time, I was like, it's one of those things you realize there's a gaping hole. Like there is a gaping hole in how we look at the universe as planners and basically be like and simply say, OK, we've used we've done the best job we possibly can. And the gaping hole was not something I realized until you shifted my paradigm as to say, no, 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 we can take this giant AR architecture and basically throw tons of data at it. And again, anyone who doesn't know what I was talking about when I talked about Renaissance Technologies, go read The Man Who the man who Knew the Market or The Man Who Beat the Market. Anyway, about uh, Jim Simons, like harnessing the power of, of tons of data. I mean, the reality is, is that the odds of you getting it right are probably not fantastic, but they're better than the odds of those static projections ever getting it right. And it's not even about that. It's more about the fact that it's going to be iterative and update and basically direct us as things change to change to basically do the right thing to modify along the way. So yeah, it was one of those things where the light bulb went off and was like, where's this been all my life? <laughs> it's been around institutionally. It's been around for 40 years. Stupid and institutions don't share with the retail. And really that's, that's a core kind of, that's the core capability is that we're not predicting the future. It's not a stress test. We don't say, let's drop a 100 basis point Fed rate increase on my portfolio and see what happens. What we're saying, as I said, you know, at the start, it's almost like predicting the weather. We don't know. I don't know what the weather's going to be like in Toronto on April the 22nd, 2025. But given our models, I can probably give you a pretty good range of what it's likely going to be. And that's based on historical data, current trend, all of that information. If you're using a Monte Carlo, we actually did this last year. We took data, daily weather data going back to 1938 for Toronto. It's about 25,000 data points and ran a Monte Carlo against it. And tomorrow's weather is going to be 12 degrees with a high of 52 and a possible lower of minus 25. <laughs> so three standard deviations per side or is that the, right. yeah, right. yeah, that, that's quite, that's quite the standard deviation band. I got to say. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. the same weather forecast every day. So yeah. what, we're, what we're trying to do is just give a more realistic view of the future, which then allows advisors to monitor, is the client going to make it or not? Is the client on track to hit that goal or not? Well, I think it was Keynes who said something to the effect of, I'd rather use Monte Carlo because I'd rather be somewhat wrong than not, than absolutely right. Um, than abs- no, so I would rather be somewhat right than absolutely wrong. Completely butchered that. And I mean, I just look at you guys as using it as a far more intelligent way of, again, instead of just simplified stochastic modeling for future probability, a far more informed decision. So 
I mean, with that many data points, my goodness, uh, it boggles the mind. Are you at the stage now where even the people running this sometimes say, okay, the, the model spit out X, but we're not really 100% clear on Y. You know, here's the 12 variables that really shifted. And you know, are, are you at the stage where the AI has become a black box? Because that's often an, an issue or a concern in the AI world. Yeah, almost the opposite of a black box. Given our, the size of our institutional clients, they demand- Yeah, they want to accept that. <laughs> they want to accept a black box. So we have a, a full disclosure system. Every month, it provides an update to all the institutions. And we're very transparent about our methodology, our assumptions, our projections, why we're projecting out a certain way. And we get into some fairly heavy debates with our institutional clients as to why. And if they fundamentally disagree, we'll put their model in. So it's, very, it's a very academically uh, a base. Our founders were academics. It's a very academically driven process. We're constantly testing the model, back-testing the model, and just seeing a good example would have been the recession in 2007, 2008. We caught most of the severity, and we we're off by about three months. So it, wow. it's, it's not a predictive tool. It's just saying, given where we are, given what we're seeing this month, we need to make adjustments in our long-term, short-term, medium-term assumptions for these asset classes, these currencies. It's just the most realistic view of the future we think is, uh, is available. So we're recording this right now in September, but this is probably not going to air for a couple months. So I'm going to ask you off air about what this thing is telling me. It's on you right now, specifically about Toronto housing. That's a different story altogether. So for those of you who don't know, and you want to see the most ridiculous price chart you're ever going to see, look at the Toronto housing price chart. For those of you listening in the US, all you're going to say is, didn't you idiots learn anything from 2008 of what happened here? The answer is no, we did not. At least I did, but most other people did not. Okay, so moving on. The, so let's talk about the implementation of this, right? So how is this technology being driven down to actual advisors utilizing it? I mean, of course, it's, it's going to be packaged up and, and used in the software or done somewhere else, but what are the actual real-life deployment cases for your, for your software on the retail level? So we, we deploy this really in kind of three different ways. One is client-facing APIs. So think digital wealth robo-advisors, client-facing portals, where clients can build and say, okay, I want to have $100,000 in five years' time, and is that feasible given this portfolio? So think kind of robo-technology. We provide that kind of realistic, okay, this portfolio will meet that. You pick this portfolio, this is your probability of hitting it. So kind of client-facing, direct-to-consumer robo-platforms. The second component that we do a lot of work with is integration with existing systems. So think a financial planning platform that want to do something other than a 5% straight line projection, they can take our APIs and use that to project it out. So just a more realistic view. So whether that's a portfolio management system, so if I've got a, a PM system with 250 clients, I can see the portfolio projection for all 250 clients updated daily. So financial planning, portfolio management systems, and then the third kind of bucket that we look at is we have an integration with Salesforce. So with firms that have Salesforce, they can use an app, basically a plugin, to monitor all of their client goals, essentially daily. And then the APIs will provide kind of recommendations of how do you get back on track. So those are the three buckets, kind of client-facing API, integration with existing technology platforms, mostly PM and financial planning. And then the third one is, uh, is Salesforce. So it's, yeah, so I mean, short, short of a Salesforce deployment or them deciding to learn to code for themselves, the reality is they're probably, I'm sure a lot of the people you're, that are utilizing your technology don't know you by name, right? Like it's, no. you're, you're a backend technology vendor that they don't, they're not familiar with, but they're sure as heck benefiting from this level of intelligence. 
Correct. It, it's, um, you know, if, if you boil it all the way down, it's a calculation engine. You tell us the asset allocation and portfolio value will project out that future returns. What you do with that really depends on the use case. So it's it's embedded in a lot of different things. And it's the market, is, as you kind of mentioned, is the gap in the market is pretty sizable because the technology basically is restricted to give me an assumption and I'll do a Monte Carlo. Which was a perfectly fine solution until we had the alternative that basically, like I said, was paradigm shifting in my mindset saying, yeah, that's, that's, that's a gap. We need to fix this. I mean, and at the end of the day, you think about the net benefit of this. So actually, before I get into what I think the net benefit of it is, mm-hmm. tell me what the feedback, I mean, the institutional side, I get what they were doing. I mean, it's, it's high stakes pension stuff. It's a little, it's easier to model, right? You got one main portfolio. You can, you can model the aggregate of all your pension liabilities over time. But when you start to get down to the minutia of individual retirement accounts, right? Like we're starting to get into some very, very minute pieces of information. User feedback. What are you getting in terms of user feedback from the institutions that are putting this in front of advisors and the advisors? themselves. So again, this has been around for in Europe for a while. The feedback we're getting here is, as you said, I didn't even know this existed. The it almost kind of feels like, you know, when you say, what are you doing for forward-looking assumptions? Balance growth portfolio 5% every year for 20 years. It looks like a ski jump. Oh, so so let me just say right now, I'm gonna I'm gonna interject for one second. For anyone listening who does that. There are there's a couple of things in financial planning that literally drive me insane. And utilizing a single return number, which basically does not account for client risk tolerance or the actual underlying asset location they're in, and therefore makes any Monte Carlo useless because you're making a single a single portfolio assumption versus, you know, if I put them in a more conservative portfolio, that Monte Carlo spectrum of outcomes should shrink. Stop doing that. Just stop. It, it is it is taking it is farcically wrong. Like it should, the, the assumptions should match the underlying allocation of how someone is invested. Anyway, that's my rants. I, I have those from time to time. You can continue. It's, so so the, there's kind of two use cases that we kind of walk through with advisors. So one is actually building a plan. So the client sits down, you sit down with the client and you put together a plan. You're trying to figure out, okay, how do all the pieces fit together? What's going to make this plan feasible? And it's a better way of looking at the future than, as I said, kind of 5% straight line. That's great. Once the account is set up, the plan is in place, the second piece is monitoring the plan and keeping the plan alive. Because a lot of plans, and we we talked to a lot of advisors over the last 12, 18 months, one of the comments that really stuck with me is an advisor said, as soon as I print a plan, it's dead. It goes in a filing cabinet. It's a plan. It's a blueprint. And I'm going to sit down every, every year or 18 months with the client and review what's changed in your plan, employment, marital status, all that stuff. But nothing is monitoring, is the plan still working? And that you need to link an actual investment account portfolio to a goal and project out the feasibility of that goal. And doing that at at scale, without this, you'd have to review every financial plan on a daily basis, take the existing portfolio and asset allocation, run a Monte Carlo based on your updated assumptions, and then see if it matches the goal. Yep. This doesn't Which no one's doing because it's just logistically impossible. I mean, we're already on, the, like, thankfully, something I've been begging for forever, which is goals-based reporting. That is now a trend that is starting to emerge through both financial planning software as uh, CRMs and Salesforce, believe it or not, and uh, portfolio management softwares. Like, this is all starting to finally come to a head where we can stop focusing on, hey, how did you do versus the S&P today? Or basically, what was the, the change in each individualized account? Like, group this into... These are my retirement assets. This is my retirement goal. 
here's the line to get me there. This is how far along I am. Because in reality, it's the old, who, who was it, has said it, uh, Clean Christensen saying about people don't buy three-quarter inch holes, they buy three-quarter inch, uh, they don't buy, I butcher all these quotes. We're going to edit that. So people don't buy three-quarter inch drill bits, they buy three-quarter inch holes, right? We confuse the investment accounts, the investments with the end goal of life. And we're starting to get to the point where finally all these systems are going to be able to support that. And they're starting to, and that's fantastic. But the missing piece, as you so eloquently put, better than I am doing butchering these quotes, is that... Yeah, it's nice that we're tracking all this, but without the probabilistic overlay based on reality, we're not really doing it justice. Yeah, it, it's, and again, I think it's from our institutional kind of background. The approach that we take is, especially when you look at something like risk, is I have a risk tolerance, a maximum risk tolerance. The discussion really should be, I want to get to my objective with as little risk as possible. So how much risk do I need to take to meet that objective? And if I say I want a minimum of 80% feasibility of goal, so I want to have an 80% probability of hitting that number, mm-hmm. how do I get to 80% with as little risk as, with as, little risk as possible? If I could yeah. do it all with T-bills and cash, why would I buy a balanced growth portfolio? Because again, yeah. my, my job is, as an advisor is to get you there as effectively as possible with as little risk as possible. And that's our kind of pension background. And this, this tool gives you that capability to say, you know, it's been a great year. We can actually de-risk your portfolio. We can move you more to cash because you don't yep. have to and, risk. And it's interesting. So, I mean, some of this is like implied, you know, it, like it basically getting consent. Uh, at the end of the day, basically everybody wants to hit their goal. But as Michael Kitsis likes to describe, Monte Carlo failure does not mean 80% chance of you not working out. It means there's a 20% chance you have to do something different. And there's a level of risk we're all willing to accept in our day-to-day lives. And we can accept that in retirement projections, right? Maybe, you know, you're not willing to do what it takes to get to 100% because that is curtailed lifestyle too much. But if you're willing to be in a position where 90%, 10% chance you do something different than what you're planning in retirement, Okay, great. And the ability to take that live data and target that on an ongoing basis, fantastic. So Richard, before we wrap up, I got uh, three questions for you. First, if you had one wish for something you can change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? (laughs) I think in the industry as a whole, it's actually democratized financial planning. It's basically all the math we've done, all the the conversation we've had is 30%, 20-30% of clients actually have any kind of goal. And unless you have a goal, it's I always believe it's very tough to make investment decisions. You have to aim for something. Lots of technologies doing that. I think from our perspective, every client has a goal now you can manage those goals. So I'd say democratizing financial planning or democratizing goals-based investing. Well, I echo that. And it's actually something that's come up quite a lot on the podcast is, is the uh, democratization of it. I mean, I will put a lot of the blame squarely on advisors because we focus too much on the, again, the, the, the three-quarter inch drill bit as opposed to the three-quarter inch hole. Focusing, frankly, if you do things right, the investment implementation should actually be one of the easier parts of your business. The financial planning should be where you spend your time. So second question for you is, what's been the biggest challenge in getting the business to where it is today? Now, you've been there for not the entire full duration, but talk to me about the North American experience. What's been the biggest issue getting us today, where you are now? Nobody knows who we are. That's, it's, it's, we're not getting calls. Well, you're European, right? Like, yeah, like what, what do you mean? Oh my God. What, um, y'all, you guys are coming over across, across the pond? Great. Yeah, it's, nobody knows this capability exists in the retail wealth side. That's the biggest problem. On the institutional side, we're constantly getting RFPs. It's a very dynamic market. We're one of probably two or three firms globally that do this on the institutional side. On the retail side, nobody does this in North America at all. So it's, and firms are using historical returns, Monte Carlo and a nice standard deviation, we're good to go. So it's, it's getting the message out. 
is the challenge is the opportunity. Once we demo this and once we demo the capabilities, the light bulbs go on extremely quickly. But the challenge is really recognition of this capability and, and communicating that efficiently. Um, and that's been the opportunity and the challenge. It's been, it's been an interesting uh, 18 months, two years. Okay, so last one. What about what it is you're doing? Excites you and gets you up every morning to keep on fighting the good fight? The opportunity. That's the biggest thing. It's, it's a bit of a sort of evangelical getting out in front of clients. Once it's interesting, once clients see this, once firms see this capability, the discussion becomes extremely interesting, extremely quickly because they realize the value of this and the uniqueness of this. And that's where it gets very interesting because how you can apply this across an organization from a discount brokerage, direct investing through a robo application to ultra high net worth and everything in between, you can apply the same models everywhere. It's how you display it, how you, what's the business case behind it. So for an organization, Lots, massive numbers of different use cases. From an advisor's perspective, the final anecdote I'll give you, we're talking to an advisor at one of the banks, deals with uh, financial planning for kind of mass affluent, kind of bank referred, bank branch referred clients. Uh, He has about 250 households. We showed him the monitoring. He said, I can manage 500 households because I'm only going to call the ones that I need to call. So I will debate that having written articles about that in terms of client servicing. So it depends on how you define your value proposition, but right. he's got a point. He's got a point if he narrows it down, but full planning implementation, no. Sure, yeah. So it's, it's the increase in capacity. The increase in capacity is a, is a huge opportunity because you can operationalize essentially monitoring every client goal every day. And that's where the value from an advisor's perspective, that's where the value is. That's the value added from an advisor over a robo, that's the value add is the ability to give advice that's timely, that's, that's meaningful and adds value. And that, that's where I think the opportunity is when these firms start to see the capabilities. That's, that's the opportunity. Fantastic. Richard, thank you much for taking the time. You're very welcome. Thanks so much. So that was my interview with Richard Owen of Ortec. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you're like me, you probably at some point woke up and said, yeah, that is much better than Monte Carlo. So hopefully we see that type of solution disseminated heavily in the North American marketplace. So as always, this has been Jason Pereira at Fintech Impact. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.